Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here to get away from the uh, budget woes in the U.S., which are just bring a torrent of bad news to the universities, and to come to a real university where people know how to do things properly. <laughs> um, thanks also to Mark Pollard for inviting me and to uh, Totri Laval for sponsoring my visit here. What I'm going to talk about today is... Um, in part, the Bronze Age, and I will say that there are people in this audience who know a lot more about the European Bronze Age than I do, so for those who are carrying rotten fruit, please move to the back. <laughs> but I, 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 I um, am sticking out my neck on this because I want to um, examine, rather than talking about the Bronze Age itself and what happened in the Bronze Age, um, a subject about which many of you know much more than I, to try and look at some of the intellectual history of that. Why is it that we call it a Bronze Age? Um, is it still worth calling it a Bronze Age? What does that imply about the social role of metals? And some of you will no doubt recognize this. I thought everyone would have seen the Mitchell and Webb uh, clip on the BBC. How many have seen it? Oh, less than half. I'm astounded. Uh, for those who haven't, go highly to YouTube immediately after this, and look up Mitchell and Webb Bronze Age, and you'll find a little five-minute skit, an absolutely brilliant skit, which I think says it all, about um, the perception of the Bronze Age among an educated audience. It's part of cultural literacy, I think, in uh, Britain, that we all know that the Bronze Age was transformational, and that the um, invention of metallurgy was one of the great um, uh, inventions that changed human societies. And in this, uh, this Mitchell and Webb clip on the BBC, you, you see a pair of rather dim-witted stone tool makers uh, being forced to attend Bronze Orientation Day, <laughs> at which they're introduced to the joys of such things as uh, bronze shoes and bronze window panes. So uh, do go and see it. But I, it's, um, I think, a very revealing clip in that it trades on a lot of... Uh, the reason it's funny is that you all know what the Bronze Age is and what it's supposed to represent. You know that metals are supposed to have transformed European societies at that time. If you didn't, it wouldn't be funny. And that's an, um, an assumption that I want to examine. In, in the long run, of course, metals did matter. They mattered very much. Um, the, this building is steel-framed. The aircraft that brought me here is metal. The... Um, bulb in that projector is metal. Uh, the computer is full of copper wiring. Uh, but what I want to look at here is the assumption that um, metals were immediately transformative and to question that. And then uh, towards the end, um, go and look outside the spread of metals in Europe to examine some other cases in the world where metals had a quite different social role on their first um, introduction and then return at the end to ask the question of whether it's still worth distinguishing a stage called the Bronze Age. So the last part, I'll look at, ask whether the adoption of metallurgy had the same relation to social change throughout the world. Can, can you hear me at the back? Am I speaking loudly? So let's go back a little while and look at the um, invention of the Bronze Age. And anyone who's <laughs> taken an introduction an introductory course in archaeology knows what's on this, this page. That um, in um, the early 1800s, the curator of the Danish Museum, Christian Thompson, used um, the presence of um, metals and uh, the absence of metals 
in archaeological assemblages that have been excavated in Denmark to um, propose that there had been three technological stages, um, a Stone Age, a Bronze Age, and an Iron Age. And uh, his successor, uh, Jens Wosai, um, confirmed this by actually going out and doing archaeological excavations using the principle of superposition. The stuff at the bottom is the oldest, and what is above it must necessarily be younger. And the three-age system was then refined over the course of the 19th century by a number of people. And the current s series of five stages that are widely used in classifying prehistory are now li are listed at the bottom, from oldest at the bottom to Iron Age at the top. The interest of uh, Thompson and Warsaw was strictly in the use of these as a dating method. They were interested in actually um, dating archaeological assembles by the presence or absence of particular types of metal or stone. A very different approach, however, uh, evolved from that. Uh, archaeology developed within the social context of the Industrial Revolution. And uh, social theorists who wrote at the time, and doubtless archaeologists who practiced at the time, were aware of the transformative power of, for example, the Bessemer process and the open hearth process at the time, the introduction of bulk steel, <coughs> and the way in which bulk steel transformed um, life as, as they knew it, providing rails, um, steel-framed fireproof buildings, um, and very much more steel ships, um, high-pressure boilers that made possible steam. And they were, I claim, um, affected by this in the way that they looked at the past. They read some of the, thing, the what they saw around them, the transformative power of metals and metallurgy, back into the past. Also at this time, remember, the late 19th century was the heyday of colonialism, the infamous Berlin Conference of 1880, when European powers sat down and divided up the map of Africa between them. And part of the justification for doing that on the part of the European powers was what is today we call social Darwinism, which is the idea that there's a ladder of intellectual abilities with Europeans at the top. And... Uh, the Chinese somewhere underneath that, and the Indians beneath that, and right at the bottom, Native Americans and Africans. And that um, the proof of this ladder of intellectual abilities was pr prowess in technology, that you could actually rank human beings, um, whole societies, by their uh, technological achievements. I recommend, for those of you who haven't seen it, Michael Adas's brilliant book, one of the best books I think ever written in the history of technology, Machines as the Measure of Men, which traces the development of this whole uh, stage from about the 13th century onwards. <coughs> Marx and uh, Lewis Henry Morgan and Engels were all aware of, of the work of Thompson and Wasai and regarded it as very important evidence in favor of their theories of dialectical materialism of the idea that um, changes in production, in productive power, um, introduce contradictions into the economies, and that those contradictions have to be worked out through changes in the superstructure, changes in the, in the social arrangements of society. And they saw, largely, I claim, because they were um, watching the Industrial Revolution unfold around them, that uh, the invention of metallurgy must have been transformative in prehistory. 
Engels was of the opinion that iron was the metal that transformed everything. He was not as impressed by um, the introduction of copper or bronze. But all of this was speculative. There was, of course, no archaeology or practically no archaeology that he could call upon um, to support this. The person who put it all together, uh, put together the technology and the social um, interpretation, was, of course, um, Big Gordon Child. I don't have to tell, uh, tell you all that. You, you know Child's work probably better than I do. But uh, starting with the Bronze Age in, in 1930 and progressing through Man Makes Himself and What Happened in History, right up to the uh, revised version of 1954, Child um, tried to put together archaeological data uh, from across the Near East, Eastern and Western Europe. And he was tried to do it in such a way that he paid attention to advances in production. The whole, his whole scheme, his whole reconstruction of what happened in history was tied to um, advances, technological advances, uh, which introduced contradictions, as he saw it, in existing social relations, which could only be re uh, resolved through social change. Um, he saw bronze metallurgy as a particularly critical innovation. In this, he disagreed with Engels. He, he saw two metallurgical revolutions, the first being bronze, the second being iron, with iron being the democratic metal, uh, bronze being the metal of elites. And he saw metals as producing, um, as necessarily produced by full-time specialists. Uh, on that, he was quite definite. He thought metallurgy, he was far too impressed by, by the, the technical difficulties of uh, producing metals from their ores. So he argued that metallurgists had to be supported by surpluses. And the production of these surpluses uh, was the change in production that led to um, uh, the, the emergence of towns, the emergence of trade. He saw bronze as particularly important because one of the materials used to make bronze tin is, is not common. There are, there are relatively few deposits, geological deposits of tin. And thus, long-distance trade was necessary to bring the tin together with the copper to make bronze. Um, those trade routes, he claimed, introduced other innovations, um, horse riding, um, wheeled vehicles, the plow, and others into Europe. And he thought that metallurgy had been invented only once, that it was too difficult to have been invented more than once, and that that was somewhere in Anatolia, and that metallurgy had uh, diffused west and east, east to China, west to Europe, and south into Africa. He was prepared to concede an independent invention of metallurgy, although he skated over it very briefly in the New World. And in Child's view, um, all of this came together, technological innovations, um, competition to control uh, and tax trade routes, um, to produce the Mediterranean states, the uh, Minoans, Mycenaeans, the next lecture in this series is on the Minoans, so I'll skate over that very rapidly. Importantly, Child had no independent dating method to support his chronologies at all. And um, the invention of, uh, sorry, the, the first application of radiocarbon dating really coincided with his retirement at the time. And, much of what he had reconstructed was rapidly unraveled by the application of radiocarbon dating. And 50 years on, um, radiocarbon dating has changed everything. 
the, way we, the way we look at this. It's given unimaginable time depth uh, to metallurgy, at least unimaginable to child. And we can now tell, as Colin Renfrew was the first to show, that uh, metallurgy developed independently, um, or at least it's a very strong presumption that it did, in three um, separate areas, uh, the Near East, the Balkans, the Iberian Peninsula, excluding the New World. Uh, that would make it four. Okay. It also seems very clear from the findings of archaeometallurgists um, who've looked at the earliest very ephemeral evidence for metallurgy that early metallurgists were not full-time specialists, that um, the skills that were needed were rudimentary, and that at first um, er the earliest metallurgy was a village activity, village craft activity, and that it took some time for the um, for specialists in metallurgy to emerge. And I'll talk some more about that. The third factor is that the time span from the earliest um, emergence of metals to the end of the Bronze Age, the general introduction of iron, has very different timescales in different regions. Uh, 6,000 years in Anatolia from the first use of native copper to the, end of, to the introduction of iron, the widespread introduction of iron, uh, versus only 1,500 years in Britain. Um, bronze itself, bronze metal, was quite rare um, until well into the Bronze Age, not until the Middle Bronze Age did it, did it become um, uh, widespread. And um, it was only with the development of other technologies that I'll talk about um, in, uh, the, towards the end of the lecture, technologies of bulk transport, that bronze became really um, widespread. <coughs> And certainly, Child's, Child was right to insist upon the importance of long-distance trade as a way of linking um, societies, spreading innovations, and um, connecting elites in different areas. But it, it didn't happen, really, until the Middle Bronze Age, uh, long, long after the first invention of metallurgy. So the metallurgical sequence we now know starts with native copper, which is copper that occurs as the element. Copper is very weakly bound to oxygen, and it can be separated from it by uh, geological processes occurring in the um, near-surface supergene environment of all bodies. And native copper is almost universally found um, in the oxidized zone, uh, where the oxidized zone is still present. In much of northern Europe that was glaciated, that has been scraped off by the glaciers, but certainly in Anatolia and the Near East and much of the Balkans, uh, th there was abundant native copper there. This was a stage that Child didn't really recognize at all. There was almost no metallurgical evidence available to him at that time. But we now know uh, from the evidence of radiocarbon dating that it's been used from around 7,000 um, BCE in Anatolia um, it didn't seem to have had much effect. One finds native copper only in the near vicinity of uh, copper ore bodies at sites like Chayanyu um, and Chatelhuyuk, um, mostly in the form of small tools, uh, awls for, for drilling copper, for drilling leather, those kinds of things, and also as um, small pendants uh, that appears sewn to clothing or... Um, or uh, hung around the neck. At almost the same time, one finds um, copper, native copper in the Balkans, as, for example, at Lipinski-Vir, 
And once again, the use of it is very local. It was not widely traded, as far as we can tell, and certainly um, didn't lead to anything much in the near term. It took about another 1,000 years at the time. And it's an interesting question to ask why it wasn't. I mean, native copper is a very distinctive material and uh, has, has uh, unique properties that one would have thought were valued. Certainly, the oxidized copper ores, malachite and, um, and azurite, were traded. They were widely traded, as Chris Thornton has shown, down um, the Levant uh, as far as Israel at about this time. Um, Thornton has argued that they were riders on the obsidian trade, and I think there's a lot of merit to that argument. Um, why native copper doesn't accompany them down, I, d I don't know. I don't actually have any explanation for that at all. The transition from native copper to smelting um, appears about 2,000 years after the first appearance of native copper with um, the production of um, um, copper from really rather pure oxide ores or carbonate ores uh, like malachite and azurite. And as such, it's very difficult to actually find evidence of it. The very small quantities of slag, the perishable material, imperishable material that archaeologists rely upon as a proxy for smelting activity is actually quite rare. And uh, much of it is probably thrown away or was thrown away by archaeologists who were excavating these sites, not recognized. I've recently been working with um, an archaeologist who... Uh, has been digging sites in eastern Hungary. And uh, much of the material there that, we've, that he has picked out uh, through very carefully looking would not be recognized, I think, by most archaeometallurgists as slag. It looks like burned um, house daub. And it's only through very careful examination that we can determine that these are, in fact, the remains of fused rocks that were attached to the, um, uh, either to native copper or to, to um, the ores. So it's not until around 3500 BC or so that you find ma that material that most archaeometallurgists would recognize as slag at this point. So the early, this early history is very uncertain at the present. It's worth emphasizing that. So the place um, where much of the most interesting information um, is found is in the Balkans. Uh, what this map shows is the um, distribution of early farming cultures moving up the um, linear band keramic uh, in black outline and the cardial wear in, in red. And uh, down here in the Balkans, the, the red triangle is where the, much of the earliest evidence for uh, metallurgy is found. The mines of uh, Ibunaya and Rudnaglava and the uh, remarkable cemeteries of uh, Vana um, One of the things that's emerging uh, from work in that region is that at first it was not copper but gold that was the focus of early metallurgy in the Balkans. And uh, casting of gold and, and copper, presumably native copper, although no one has really looked into the question, um, began from about 4600 B BCE. Um, we know this mostly from cemetery sites. There's, there's very little evidence of metals from, from habitation sites. And um, clearly, if one looks at, at the incidence of the metals, the, the um, ubiquity of the metals in the graves, uh, gold was the more valued 
uh, material. <clears throat> From the work of Evgeny Chernek and um, other Russian and uh, Eastern European metallurgists, we know that there was a, a boom in the use of metal, primarily gold, between about 4200 and 3700 in the Balkans. Um, but after that, it's, there's a bust. Metals almost disappear. They're not found in grave sites uh, in the Balkans. And there are varying explanations for this. Um, is, is it exhaustion of resources, as was argued by Chernek and others, that the early um, alluvial gold had been mined out and that the, the uh, oxide remains on top of the sulfide ore bodies had been mined out and one had to develop technology to smelt sulfides? Or is it, as Tim Taylor has argued, that it's a, a, a change in the deposition of metal or alternatively that the metal was deposited but was later robbed out uh, by grave robbers at the time? This is still being argued very, very actively at the moment. But for the Varna phase from about 4200, um, uh, there is spectacular um, evidence of um, uh, gold and uh, copper, as you can see in this particular grave. Um, and you can see that they, they mark social hierarchies, um, particularly associated with male um, uh, prestige, male dominance. Um, and, but most of them are not yet tools. Gold obviously doesn't make good tools. And on the, the upper right there, you see a variety of small gold ornaments that were stitched to clothing or worn as finger rings. Um, but the artifacts that are actually, the copper artifacts that you see in the graves, the ones in green, okay, like the, these ones here, are un unalloyed, pure copper, fairly soft, and uh, not terribly useful for, for the tasks of um, the heavy work uh, of felling trees or certainly not used in agriculture. They seem to have been more um, symbols of um, social status than practical tools. Metallurgy spread rather slowly um, west across Europe. And the, the Copper Age um, is perhaps best known to all of us from the, um, Utzi the Iceman with his copper axe, uh, which was uh, originally misclassified as a bronze axe. Uh, which uh, people went back later and analyzed it and found it to be pure copper. So copper working then spreads through Central Europe. And it's not until um, between 26 and 2400 that it actually reaches Britain with um, the migration of uh, um, people bringing beaker pottery. The earliest uh, copper mine that we know of in Britain at Ross Island um, on the tip, the tip of um, uh, in, in Killarney, <coughs> has been shown to be the source of most of the early copper um, in the British Isles, and it's a, a beaker associated, beaker pottery associated with it. Um, exactly who the the beaker uh, people were is not known. The beakers appear to have been high status metal, um, uh, sorry, high status um, drinking vessels, but. There are doubtless people in the audience who know much more about it than I do. And then copper metallurgy appears to have been invented independently in southern Spain, but its connection to the metallurgy of northern Spain and southern France is still a matter of some, some debate as to whether um, um, the uh, techniques spread up from southern Spain. 
Tin and bronze follow through Europe um, sometime after uh, pure copper working. Tin is rather scarce geologically. There are relatively few sources of it um, in Central Europe at all. One has to go all the way east if one's sitting in somewhere like Bulgaria or Anatolia to find substantial sources of it. You have to go to Kazakhstan or uh, to, to um, Afghanistan. Okay. Uh, if you come west, then there are abundant sources in Spain and um, Cornwall, of course, and the, uh, in, in Germany, in the Erzgebirge. But at first, the earliest metallurgists in uh, Western Europe um, didn't seem to know of the properties of, of tin. And so there is good evidence for the spread of tin bronze across from, from east to west at this time. In the Near East, of course, there's tin bronze early on from about 3200 BC. And no one really knows where the tin is coming from. Tin has proved rather difficult to trace. And in any case, the source areas in Afghanistan have been off limits for quite some time. So no one has actually been able to get in and, and, and look for direct evidence of mining there. And so it, it remains an open question as to where, where the, the, tin, the sources of tin for Mesopotamia were coming from. So between about uh, 3,100 and about 2,500, um, bronzes are found in the Balkans and on the steppes in Eastern Europe. Um, again, the sources of those are unknown. Kazakhstan is, is, is a possible source. Um, and there's signs of movement of tin bronzes into um, Europe, from, from Eastern Europe at, the, at about this time. But certainly bronze was not common. Bronze did not become common in um, Eastern Europe until about 2500 BCE. And in many parts, like the, the Maros uh, swamps of, Hungar of uh, um, Eastern Hungary, uh, it was not common until much later, until um, about 1800 or so. Once it got going into Central Europe, however, um, it spread fairly rapidly. In Western Europe, as I mentioned already, there are abundant supplies of tin in Iberia, Cornwall, Brittany, Germany. And once the actual idea um, of making um, tin began in Western Europe, there were more or less inexhaustible supplies of uh, tin to be had. And one finds by about 2000 or so long-distance trade networks springing up, which move all kinds of material, not just bronze, but other uh, valued materials like amber, um, faience beads, um, various kinds of colored rocks and minerals being moved around, over which elites, emerging elites, competed. The uh, possession of these appears to have been as, as much a matter of status as a matter of any practical utility. And uh, one of the recent advances in archaeology that uh, I think um, is, is particularly striking here has been the application of isotopic analysis to show just how far people did move through strontium um, analysis of bone and teeth and oxygen isotope analysis. Quite, quite remarkable movements of um, uh, people have been shown by um, um, people buried with these kinds of goods, uh, with tin bronze, with, uh, with uh, exotic uh, lithics and others. So we have to imagine at this time
um, a network of travelers bearing goods desired by elites moving around. So you have a kind of two-tier system of metallurgical production. The uh, local production of um, metals for local consumption, but then increasingly specialist production uh, springing up to service the desires of elites. And uh, here's an example. This is a horde, the upper horde from, um, from Hungary, eastern Hungary, uh, dated, well, hordes are difficult to date, but, but by um, um, comparison with some other sites, probably 1800 to 1600 BCE. And you notice some of these are clearly the products of uh, specialists. They're, 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 they're beautiful work. They're, they're uh, lovingly made and incised. Uh, they're clearly the products of specialists making materials for elites. Some of these traveled very long distances. There, are, there is at least one sword that's identical to this uh, in Scandinavia. And it was almost certainly made in Hungary and carried along trade routes um, and eventually ending up um, in, in, in Scandinavia. Uh, it must have been a very expensive and a very, a very uh, prestigious weapon for the person who held it. <coughs> the other thing that one sees at this time is, is, and you can infer that from what we see here, is that prestige bronze items are very much associated with warrior elites, that they are um, items made for, held by, um, given among male warrior elites at the time, and that um, the acquisition of these kinds of things um, might uh, take place over great distances. This is also a time when one finds hordes of various kinds, uh, large amounts of bronze being um, hidden deliberately, and <clears throat> Also, um, votive caches, uh, bronze weapons of various kinds being deliberately deposited, often near bodies of water, um, as, as a gift, a sort of expensive, um, a, a, another way of demonstrating your status, if you're rich enough to be able to afford to, to dispose of, of uh, material like this, you're, you're making a statement about your, your status and, and your, your, your social worth. Uh, another indication of this is the increasing presence of uh, feasting cups, the evidence of, um, in artifactual form of feasting among elites. These gold cups are also from Ottomani. So there was an increasing demand through the Middle Bronze Age then for bronze, Gold, too, remained an essential part of um, status. But gold supplies were much less abundant than they'd been at the beginning of metallurgy. And bronze increasingly took the place uh, for um, elites who um, couldn't get access to as much gold as they might have wanted. By the late Middle Bronze Age, um, tin was moving around in really quite large quantities, we think. We don't have great good evidence of this until the late Bronze Age with the shipwrecks that have been found uh, off Turkey. But um, clearly, the power and prestige of the Minoans, for example, was in part due to the location and the fact that they could tap into tax control, perhaps, uh, perhaps even be directly involved in the transshipment of uh, large amounts of copper and bronze that were going west and north 
um, <coughs> from the Mediterranean to service the demand for these kinds of prestige goods and uh, increasingly for, for functional weapons um, in, the, in Europe and uh, especially in Scandinavia. Christian Christiansen argues that in Scandinavia, the possession of bronze weapons was, was crucial to the emergence of, of social hierarchies because Scandinavia lacked any sources of tin itself. And that um, uh, competition to acquire these kinds of weapons was a major factor in uh, the emergence of social hierarchies at the time. In the late Bronze Age, um, the kind of trade that I've just argued for is actually evident directly in the form of shipwrecks. And uh, most people, I think, have heard of the Uluburun shipwreck, um, the later of two of the southern coast of, of Turkey. Um, and of the materials that were being circulated at the time, uh, this little um, um, diagram shows some of the sources and the inferred route of the ship that sank here at Uluburun, uh, carrying such things as um, copper, tin, ivory, uh, even ebony. Here's some pictures of the shipwreck itself showing uh, stacked copper ingots, 10 tons of them, uh, which have spilled out of the hold of the ship as it sank. Uh, tin ingots at the top, and uh, blocks of um, raw glass, cobalt glass, presumably coming out of Syria at the time. Uh, ebony, which must have come from, uh, from Egypt, uh, possibly acquired from the land of Punt down uh, off the Abyssinian coast. And uh, um, olive oil, wine, a whole sort of traveling uh, supermarket of uh, commodities of interest to elites in the Mediterranean at this time. So you're getting the idea here that um, in the late Bronze Age, this was the um, bronze and tin had become commoditized, that there were, in fact, large-scale mercantile networks set up. And presumably these also exist in the Middle Bronze Age, although we don't have direct evidence of them. The beneficiary of much of the late Bronze Age trade was, was Mycenae. And uh, Mycenae is, was ideally placed uh, geographically to monitor and control and tax the uh, trade in metals and all kinds of other luxury goods uh, between the, the Aegean, the Black Sea, and the Mediterranean. Um, there's been some suggestions from James Muley and others that tin at this time was coming largely across uh, from the Caucasus to the Black Sea and then being traded down through the Aegean. Um, that's unprovable at this point. But certainly Mycenae would have been very well placed to exact a tax on any uh, shipments of metal coming through uh, the Aegean and thence out uh, towards the Western Mediterranean. So, um, that's a very simplified um, tour through the, the European Bronze Age, for which I apologize. There are people in the audience who can doubtless correct me for mistakes I've made. But what do we make of the Bronze Age at this point? Well, certainly the Bronze Age is ultimately a time of major social ec economic transitions, but it's a messy one. The uh, divisions that have been made um, that have tended to endure for a long time 
And certainly, the, like the early Bronze Age, for example, has very little bronze in it. Um, the, the divisions of prehistory that were established um, are increasingly hard to correlate between regions, uh, national regions. And uh, we are perhaps at a time where it would make sense to scrap the whole scheme and try and find a more rational um, way to, um, to transcend national boundaries and, and correlate national sequences. And uh, what's actually driving this? Was it metals? Was it the, did metal, were metals that important? Almost certainly not. At the early part of the time, I don't think metals had any great um, economic significance. Certainly a social significance they did. But um, I think that most of what we're seeing in um, the presence of bronze in graves is just a function of the greater preservation of bronze relative to other kinds of things that we can't actually infer because we don't have material evidence of them. Uh, what I think must be going on, and is certainly much more important than metallurgy, is increasing population densities, which are creating greater demand for things, um, where people are bumping into each other on the landscape more and more, and in consequence, social friction, um, a conflict, um, the uh, consequent rise of, um, of social hierarchies to dominate others. And these, the underlying causes of these have to be um, agricultural and transportation technologies, not metal per se. Metal is just an epiphenomenal um, uh, layer on top of this that we see because it's so well preserved. What we're not seeing are the underlying uh, increases in, um, in population increase population densities that are driven by other technologies that are ultimately, I think, more important. <clears throat> the um, early interest in gold, in particular in the Balkans, I think, um, has gone largely unnoticed. The, 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 the significance of that, the ultimate significance of that, is that it shows that metallurgy was ultimately valued mostly for reasons unrelated to utility, that they were uh, ways of demarcating social status uh, in, in the um, Calcolithic, and that the, the utilitarian properties of, um, of metals take, took much, much longer to develop than child um, supposed, and that um, I think we still, we still recognize. It's not until the Middle Bronze Age, at the time when I think the density of populations had built up considerably that one starts to find um, evidence of, um, of great violence um, and the, the importance of weapons, of bronze weapons, in uh, promoting that violence at the time. And I think the, the ultimate, the most important um, factor here is the development of seaborne transport at the time in the Middle and Late Bronze Age, which started to move metals around in bulk at the time and hence one sees the, 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 the um, MBA and L, um, LBA fluorescence in, uh, in metal weapons. So I don't think bronze itself uh, deserves to be the uh, marker of the time of these social transitions. Uh, it's what we happen to see in the archaeological record, and it's what um, archaeologists used to establish per periods within the um, archaeological records by and large, that and pottery, before radiocarbon dating was available. Now that we have uh, an increasingly good command of the record directly through independent dating methods, um, it is perhaps, um, and I'll 
undoubtedly attract some uh, um, criticism for this, time to look again at whether the term Bronze Age is actually useful. So let's move on and have a look at the way in which metals were introduced in other parts of the world, very briefly in concluding this. And if we look at the um, areas of, of primary state formation, and um, I'm not sure exactly what was intended by the who, person who put this map together for the Mediterranean, 3200 BC. But uh, if we look at the other ones, certainly in Egypt and Mesopotamia, social hierarchies, um, urbanization, state formation, took place long before there was any major impact from metals. Um, in China... Uh, the arrival of metals, as we'll see in a minute, more or less coincides with the, uh, the first state, the Xia state. So it certainly was not a causative factor in there. Um, the state formation was going on quite well without the arrival of metals. The Indus Valley we really don't know enough about at this point uh, to, to, to say much about the role of bronze in there. Um, Mesoamerica, there were no metals at the time of the... Um, rise of such large cities as Teotihuacan and, um, and, and the Mayan um, temples. Metals didn't arrive in uh, Mesoamerica until about 600 AD, by which time the Maya were uh, starting their long period of decline. And in Andean civilizations, the advent of metallurgy has been pushed back now with recent finds by my colleague Mark Oldendurfer of gold in the highlands at around, around 3000 BC. But um, they played very little role, very little role at all in the, um, um, the rise of states at the time. So I think what I'm trying to say in this is that metals don't, don't seem to have been a major factor in social evolution over much of the world. There are two cases that I wanted to look at um, a little more closely. The first one is China, um, between about 2300 and 1200 uh, B.C., There is a long tradition in China of, of um, Chinese scholarship of arguing that everything of any interest was invented in China, and metallurgy is no exception. Joseph Needham was certainly a promoter of this view. And in this view, part of the evidence is the fact that um, early metallurgy in the core area between the uh, Yellow and the Yangtze rivers, sorry, I don't know what's making that clicking noise, okay. uh, is so distinctive and so different, whereas metal in the peripheral areas of China out here uh, is rather rudimentary. And so the idea is that metallurgy was developed here and a sort of degenerate form of metallurgy spread out to the provinces. We now know that not to be the case because there's now very good evidence for uh, metal having spread across from the steppes through with pastoralists, as David Anthony and others have written, to the Tarim Basin. This is the area where there are the Caucasoid uh, mummies that have recently been uh, discovered. And the earliest metallurgy in China itself um, is in Gansu province, which predates the um, metallurgy of um, the core area by, by several hundred years. But what's really of interest here is what happens when metallurgy coming across the steppes actually reaches the core. It becomes totally transformed. Hello. These are some of the earliest um, bronze vessels found in China from the, the Xia state, run uh, 1900 to 1600 BC. And um, 
they don't look like the earliest vessels that you'd expect anywhere. There's no evidence in the core of, of any transitional stage into bronze metallurgy. It's just bronze arrives immediately, and it's immediately um, put into making serving vessels, which occur along with uh, pottery vessels that serve much the same function. And you can see that, th that there's an obvious relationship in forms between the pottery and the, you know, the metal ones. In the succeeding Shang vessel, Shang state rather, um, the use of bronze uh, achieves kind of heroic proportions. And very, very complex um, uh, castings are uh, made, uh, made by the piece mold technique, as is shown here, in which preforms like legs, for example, are inserted into a mold. They're fitted together. And then the three pieces of the outer mold are put together and a top. So you end up with very, very elaborate castings in which the decoration is picked up by the metal from the, the um, uh, forms actually carved into the mold, a quite unique technology um, that uh, was developed in China at the time. And the scale of Chiang metallurgy that you can see, and remember this is only about 400 years after metallurgy first reaches the core area, is quite astounding. These two vessels here are, pa are part of about five tons of, uh, of bronze from the tomb of a um, female general named Fu Hao, who died around 1250, right towards the end of the Shang, the Shang dynasty. Um, but before, this is, this is the, one of the largest and most famous tombs of the Shang, but there are certainly large tombs from the early Shang, from um, 1600 BC. So what's happening here is um, that metallurgy arrives, almost certainly from outside, but immediately it's transformed into something quite different. And why, do, why does that happen? And what does it tell us about Chinese um, uh, attitudes towards metal? <clears throat> to answer that, we need to go back to what was happening in this area before metallurgy. Okay. And in the Longshan culture of 3000 to 2000 BC, you start to see um, rice agriculture building up large surpluses, uh, the emergence of social hierarchies, and uh, complex chieftains not yet states, the Xia was the first state, but complex chieftains uh, with clear evidence of craft specialization, very, very elaborate ceramics being produced. And you could perhaps note the similarity of some of those forms to the later ones that you see in bronze. <coughs> in the Longshan period, uh, quite extraordinary skill had been developed in pottery. And uh, these you can recognize, again, the, the ancestral forms that were later reproduced in metal. But there are such technical feats as the so-called eggshell pottery, the walls of which are barely a millimeter and a half thick. Um, very extraordinary, extraordinary creations that predate the arrival of metallurgy in China. So the, um, to cut the story short, what happened is that when metals arrived in China, they came into a situation where you had very, very skilled craftsmen making materials for elites, uh, an elite tradition. And they just simply took this new material and um, rather than um, forging it or, um, or uh, uh, forming it in ways that would have been done in the West, they made it conform to um, the forms the, the, um, that they wanted by casting it and by developing increasingly complex uh, ways of casting it 
uh, and elaborate ways of casting it. So within a period of about 500 years, the Chinese had developed, uh, had, had, had fitted um, metallurgy to their needs. And their needs were largely for elaborate state rituals, for f uh, competitive feasting, and so on, and for the burial of enormous amounts of metallurgy with powerful people. Uh, there was no use of metallurgy in agriculture, uh, precious little use of metallurgy in weapons until the late Shang. Uh, it was adapted almost entirely to um, um, court ritual. The second case um, is very, very different. And here um, we go to an area where bronze was never invented, where you have 6,000 years, continuous years, of the use of native copper. And that is in North America. And here you have a very different sequence that is quite different from either of the two that we've talked about here. Uh, the Upper Peninsula of um, Michigan is home to the world's greatest deposits of native copper, which are scattered all along the Keweenaw Peninsula along here. And this is actually a map drawn in 1862 for the Smithsonian um, Institution showing the locations of... Uh, pre-European mines along the Kivanor Peninsula. All of those little black dots there are, um, are ancient mines where people had pulled out native copper. <clears throat> the archaeological sites with native copper in them go back to 5000 uh, BC and perhaps earlier. Uh, there are earlier dates that um, archaeologists are not quite sure about. These are from excavations by Susan Martin of Michigan Technological University and there are dates of around 5,000 BC, good dates, on, on these. And interestingly, they're all tools. Okay? There are hardly any ornaments in there. Uh, you have these socketed points here. And these are all knives of various forms, which resemble the kind of um, lunate knives, uh, rocker knives, that are used. This, this one with a built-in handle. These other ones, presumably, would have had a wooden handle across, uh, ra rather similar to... to um, some Chinese kitchen knives that uh, are made today. These are all made out of native copper. Uh, copper was never smelted in North America until the arrival of the Spanish. Okay. <clears throat> Over time, an interesting thing happens. Uh, the, the ones that I showed you in the last slide were from the old copper culture, which is the earliest period of native copper working. And they're all tools, or almost all tools. Move forward in time, and the tools disappear. And um, by the, the woodland period, around 200 BC to, to four, um, 480 CE, um, copper is now used almost exclusively as some um, sheets from which uh, quite elaborate forms are cut out. And those uh, forms are then buried. Most of them are found in graves underneath um, the tumuli of the woodland culture. And you can see the distribution of those, the, um, um, the green triangles and the, the red squares mark the distribution of woodland cultures, the earlier Adena culture from about 800 BCE to 200 CE, and then the later um, Hopewell, which are the red squares from about um, uh, 200 to um, 400 CE. And then going on to the later periods, this is the Mississippian period, and when they, the copper work becomes uh, larger and more elaborate, 
and is often used to express what's often called the Southern cult, which is an, a very widespread ideological system which consists of um, pictures of dancing warriors or priests, often uh, in the form of with bird heads or wearing bird masks or effigies. Um, it's a drawing of the, the copper plaque there. And the Mississippian sites are in blue here. Uh, almost all of the native copper in there is thought to have come by the, from the upper peninsula of Michigan, which is up here, the Keweenaw Peninsula, although that's now, that assumption is now being tested by, increasingly by the application of lead isotope analysis. So what do we see here? What we see here is um, the reverse sequence to what we've seen. I mean, in the Balkans, what we saw was the, the use of um, gold initially and, and copper to some extent um, for decorative purposes. Okay. And then tools appear as you go further on uh, through time. Here we see the reverse. The tools come early. And then the abandonment, uh, uh, the use of native copper for tools is abandoned. And um, we move entirely to a system in which copper is used for decorative purposes, often funerary purposes and, and, and ritual purposes. Uh, tools are made of stone throughout this series. And it lasts for 6,000 years. Okay. <clears throat> the last um, thing I wanted to point to as an illustration of just how variable the impact of metals has been uh, in the world is um, the case of gold. Um, as we saw at the beginning of this lecture, gold is the first metal, really, to assume major social significance in the, um, the Balkans. There. And the predilection for gold has sort of stretched throughout European prehistory and has been um, taken, for example, to India, India has for a long, long time now been the world's major consumer of gold. And still today, about 50% of all gold mined goes to India for jewelry. You can't get married in India without gold jewelry. And so India is the largest consumer of that. And here, for example, from Ur, you see the, um, the um, desire for gold um, from uh, around 2500 BC from the royal tombs in Ur. So gold, then, has been the preeminent metal for the display of status in much of the western part of the old world. However, that desire, we, we tend to think of gold as somehow being a universal store of value and standard, but it's not so. For example, when metals are adopted in China, I showed you during the Xia, they ignored gold entirely. Copper was the valued metal. It wasn't that there wasn't any gold or silver. They just didn't like the stuff. And it's not until the Shang, late Shang that you start to see um, gold uh, coming in and being used as accents on copper work and then, then eventually being valued by itself. North America, too. There's, there's a lot of, of alluvial gold in North America. But although Native Americans valued native copper and traded over long distances, there's no gold in any sites in, in uh, North America. And it's not because it's not there, and I, I can't believe that, that um, it wasn't recognized. It simply was not valued. I'm an Africanist, and the same is true of sub-Saharan Africa. There is no gold, in, in, uh, certainly in the southern half of Africa, until, the, until Muslim trade connects to southern Africa at the time. As we all know, southern Africa has been a major source of gold, both for the Muslim world and uh, latterly,
for um, um, during the industrial era uh, of, of, um, for the world in general. There's abundant gold, alluvial gold, or, um, to be found in Africa, but no one used it. It wasn't until the, the uh, Muslim traders connected with southern Africa and introduced the idea of gold as being valuable, offered to buy it, that it began to be adopted by local elites who, who vied with each other to control the gold trade out to the Muslim world, and as part of that adopted the Muslim world's sense of the value of gold at the time. So um, valuation of gold then is not universal. There have been regions of the world that in the past they have ignored gold almost entirely until they came into contact with um, um, transcontinental traders who did value it at the time. So to wrap all this rather long and complicated story up, <coughs> um, summarize what I was saying about gold. <coughs> I think that we've made to rather too much of the invention of metallurgy as a turning point in human history. In the long term, um, metals have undoubtedly transformed society. But uh, when we actually look at the stages of the invention of metallurgy and its initial adoption, we see a very variable pattern uh, depending on where we are in the world. And uh, certainly much of what we think we know about um, the um, impact of, of metals on the world has been drawn from the European Bronze Age. As I hope to sh have shown in the last part of this talk, other parts of the world are, rather, are really quite different. Uh, it is often the case in archaeology, since archaeology developed here in Europe, <coughs> that what happens in Europe is taken as paradigmatic for, for, for the rest of the world. And I hope that to have shown you that at least in the case of metallurgy, um, that's an assumption that needs to be reconsidered. Thank you. <laughs>